Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. In the mid to late 1960s, Minneapolis, like many cities across the country, experienced racial unrest and student protests over the war in Vietnam. Law and order became a central campaign theme for a Minneapolis police lieutenant who ran as an independent in the city's 1969 mayoral race. Charles Stenvig positioned himself as a populist who would, quote, take the handcuffs off the police, close quote, and crack down on militants. In a stunning victory, Stenvig defeated both of his major party opponents and challenged the prevailing belief that Minneapolis was a liberal and progressive city. There are many parallels between Stenvig's political ascension and current Republican campaign promises to tamp down on crime and civil unrest. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, we present part one of a two-part series on the politics of law and order. We're joined by Southern Illinois University Professor of Historical Studies Jeffrey Manuel, who is the co-author of an article on Stenvig titled, You Can't Legislate the Heart. Professor Manuel, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks so much for having me. In 1969, the popular liberal Minneapolis mayor, Arthur Naftalin, declined to run for a fifth term, paving the way for a surprise victory by outsider and independent candidate Charles Stenvig. Stenvig was a 41-year-old Minneapolis police detective and president of the police federation. Why did Stenvig decide to run for mayor, and why was he considered such a long shot? That's a great question. Uh, Stenvig decided to run for mayor largely because he, like a lot of other Minneapolitans uh, and people around the nation at that time, felt as though they were sort of fed up with uh, what they believed were rising crime rates, the inability of previous liberal administrations and City Hall to deal with it, and just the general sort of populist upwelling at that time. We think of this era, you know, in the aftermath of the 1968 presidential election and Richard Nixon's invocation of the silent majority. I think Stenvig saw himself as one of those silent majority folks who was going to step up and do something about it in 1969. What do we know about Stenvig's career as a police officer? He was a pretty standard police officer. He had grown up in Minneapolis, lived in a South Minneapolis neighborhood, and had become a detective, I believe, before he ran, uh, was involved with the police union prior to running for office. But he wasn't necessarily a lead. I mean, he was a leader through the union, but he wasn't necessarily the person you would have identified as, you know, if you had identified a year earlier, which someone from the police department who was going to run for the mayor's office, you might not have picked Charles Stenvig. Uh, So he really was kind of an outsider, an outlier who just gained a lot of traction all of a sudden with the election itself. What was the relationship like between the Minneapolis police and the community at that time? Well, it's hard to say, and and it depends a lot on which part of the Minneapolis community you're talking about in the late 1960s. The police department had a conflicted relationship with at least two major groups in the city at that time. 
particularly with the small but growing African-American community. And the real flashpoint there were uh, disturbances or riots on Plymouth Avenue in the uh, years immediately preceding the 1969 election, and also an increasingly contentious relationship with student activists at the University of Minnesota, who were involved in anti-Vietnam War protests, a growing counterculture, and believed that the city police department were sort of the forces of repression. So the police department didn't have necessarily a great relationship with those two groups. Beyond that, there still were a lot of people in living in Minneapolis who identified very strongly uh, as pro-police, uh, particularly in more blue-collar neighborhoods like Northeast Minneapolis, like North Minneapolis, uh, who were strong supporters of the police and you know appreciated their a more law and order approach. In your article, you wrote that Stenvig's campaign ran a pledge to, quote, take the handcuffs off of the police, close quote, and crack down on what he called, quote, racial militants, close quote. Why did this campaign message resonate so well with voters? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and something that my co-author Andy Urban and I puzzled over quite a bit. I think in part it's, you know, from our eyes or to our ears today in 2020, it's not hard to hear the, I don't even want to say coded racism there. I mean, it's not very coded. He's simply saying leaders of the civil rights movement were militant and he believed that they needed to be cracked down upon. Uh, Here he was following the lead of what we saw in a lot of other cities as well that had a civil rights movement that was becoming more activist And there there was a strong backlash against that. I think it surprised a lot of people, a lot of national observers, because Minneapolis was simply not on their radar as one of the places where this was happening. You know, they looked to uh, Detroit, which had had riots in 1967. They looked to Oakland with the very prominent Black Power movement and Black Panthers. But they wouldn't have necessarily identified Minneapolis, which still had a fairly small, uh, proportionally African American population, as one of the as one of the places where this would break out. I think we saw some echoes of that in the national media following George Floyd as well. People sort of scratching their head and saying, "Wait, Minneapolis?" So there was an element of that that was going on. But uh, Stenvig was very good at tapping into sort of a gut level reaction among a lot of. Minneapolis residents, particularly white working class residents, who did embody that Nixonian silent majority. They saw the turmoil on the University of Minnesota campus. They saw the protests uh, and disturbances on Plymouth Avenue. And they really strongly believed that the problem here was just that the police weren't being tough enough on these people. And Stenvig came along and said, you know, I'm the guy who's going to get tough he rejected the idea that there was some sort of fundamental problem going on in terms of structural racism or things like that and said, no, the problem is just we have put handcuffs on the police in dealing with them, these folks, and if we allow the police to take off those handcuffs and get tough, we'll, we'll crack down on this stuff. And that was a message that really resonated with a lot of Minneapolis residents in 1969. We are talking with Southern Illinois University Professor of Historical Studies Jeffrey Manuel about the politics of law and order and former Minneapolis Mayor Charles Stenvig. Professor Manuel is the co-author of an article on Stenvig titled, You Can't Legislate the Heart. You had mentioned a riot that burned down a swath of businesses along Plymouth Avenue in 1967. The mayor at that time, Arthur Naftalin, 
was told by his advisors to urge restraint to the police response. How did the Plymouth Avenue riot impact Minneapolis, and did Naftalin's handling of the event create a desire among voters to have a law and order candidate a few years later? Yeah, I think it definitely did. The Plymouth Avenue disturbances, you maybe can't draw a perfectly direct line between that event and Charles Stenvig's election two years later, but definitely I think it put in the minds of lots of Minneapolis residents something that was very much in the air in the late 1960s, and that was a belief that the Democratic or DFL Party's version of liberalism was simply not effective in responding to newly radical demands uh, and its growing sense of sort of chaos and disorder that liberal attempts to manage it in that time by balancing out the different groups uh, and things like the approaches that were very common from mid-century liberalism didn't seem to be as effective. And so Charles Stenbig shows up and says, Arthur Naftalin's time in City Hall had tried to do it his way, which was the old DFL broker state liberalism way, and it didn't seem to be working. And he said, I'm going to show up and crack heads. And that appealed to a lot of voters. Uh, Naftalin is maybe not an incredibly well-known guy, but was very much almost like a high watermark, I see him as, for mid-century liberalism in Minnesota. He was a student of Hubert Humphrey uh, and really believed strongly that if you applied scientific principles to governing, if you took the latest and most appropriate theories from political science, he worked in the political science department at the University of Minnesota, and applied them to government through City Hall, you could effectively sort of manage the city as a harmonious entity. He had this quote about, you know, it's coming to the point where a city manager with the right computers could appropriately manage the city. And of course, by the late 1960s, that seemed like a pretty false dream, or that dream was going to become impossible. And I think Stenvig tapped into a lot of that disillusionment with his populist reaction. And it caused a lot of people to turn against mid-century liberalism more generally as well. It was sort of the microcosm of how that played out in Minneapolis, but it was definitely a national trend as well. Clearly, Stenvig was the polar opposite of Naftalin in virtually every sense. Minneapolis had then and has now a reputation of being a rather liberal city. Does the era of Stenvig's mayoral run counter this image? Yeah, I think it definitely does, or at least causes pause about the depth and commitment of that liberalism, especially when it comes to racial matters. I know this is something that's been on the minds of many Minnesota residents and many people nationally, of course, in the aftermath of George Floyd as well, that to what extent is there a connection between Minneapolis's well-known liberal and progressive traditions and its relatively small or historically small minority populations? It's, of course, become much more diverse in recent decades than it was in 1969. But I was very surprised in doing the research that went into this article. And I should say before this article, Andy Urban and I had put up a small museum exhibit at the Elmer Anderson Library uh, in the University of Minnesota that actually came before this article. And in doing the research for that, I was very surprised at just how quickly 
many white Minneapolis residents responded in really negative and vicious ways to the outbreak of civil rights activism in the city in the 1960s. And as a historian studying modern US history, what struck me was just how similar it was to what we saw everywhere else, that Minneapolis in that way wasn't an outlier, didn't stand out as a progressive bastion, at least of racial liberalism or racial progressivism. Instead, you know, when you read interviews of working class white Minneapolis residents in neighborhoods in North Minneapolis, Northeast Minneapolis, uh, South Minneapolis, they said things that could have very easily come from parts of the South or working class neighborhoods in Detroit, places like that. And that really stood out to me as something that was different than the story I had in my head about Minneapolis. Stenvig displayed hostility toward the press and accused the media of holding a liberal bias. How did the media portray Stenvig and his outsider status, and how did Stenvig use his disdain for the press to his advantage? Yeah, this is something that I think does feel quite modern to me. We think of, you know, attacks on the the liberal press or media bias as being a much more modern phenomenon. And quotes from Charles Stenvig attacking the press, kicking reporters out of press conferences, uh, could come straight out of the headlines in 2020. And he very much lumped the mainstream media in with what he called the liberal establishment. He drew a circle around the DFL politicians in City Hall, a handful of civic leaders and business leaders like the Dayton family, the Cowles family, people who ran the main media or press at that time and the television at that time, and said they're all part of the same thing. They're sort of a liberal elite that is not listening to the needs and demands of average people. And so he painted them all with this sort of broad brush, which included the media. And so in this way, I think he was a true populist, right? He upheld the the common person or the common man and woman against this ill-defined liberal elite, which included the media. Now, the media, for the most part, returned that disdain. I mean, there was a lot of articles that painted him as sort of a buffoon, uh, a joker, a a very crude, uncultured man that even in very straight down the line reporting, they would sneak in a little quote uh, that sort of gave a hint that there was not a lot of respect among the reporters for Stenvig. So the feeling was very much mutual in both ways, I think. We are talking with Southern Illinois University Professor of Historical Studies, Jeffrey Manuel, about the politics of law and order and former Minneapolis Mayor Charles Stenvig. Professor Manuel is the co-author of an article on Stenvig titled, You Can't Legislate the Heart. You write that Stenvig did not hesitate to govern through the police. What do you mean by that? Well, that follows in line with his initial claim that he was going to take the handcuffs off the police, and he used the police to achieve political ends. If there were groups that were, say, protesting against a policy he had or that he disagreed with, he was quite open in sicking the police on those groups. And also he, through the police union and his widespread support among police officers and their families, who mostly lived in Minneapolis at that time, uh, they became a very powerful voting block for him and support for him. So he was quite open about channeling them into a Stenvig voting block that would support him in elections. 
Did Stenvig's Law and Order candidacy and his experience as a police officer have lasting impacts on the Minneapolis Police Department? That's a really interesting question. Initially, I would say no, or or I guess to clarify, I would say that there was sort of a backlash against him once he left politics in the 1970s and as you move into the 1980s. And there's a couple reasons for that. I think one, there was a sense that policing in general became more scientific, more professionalized. Increasingly, police departments throughout the Twin Cities began to do simple things like requiring that police officers have a college degree of some sorts. That had been quite rare in the first half of the 20th century. It was seen as very much a working class or every man's type job. And it became a profession like others later on with the idea that you had to have specialized training in the laws you're enforcing, the technology, how to nego- how to deal with criminals, that sort of a thing. And I think some of that professionalization was very much a response to the populist trends of Charles Stenvig. But the other big thing that happened was suburbanization and white flight, that a lot of the grassroots support for Charles Stenvig came out of white working class neighborhoods in the outlying neighborhoods in Minneapolis. And as we move into the 60s, 70s, 80s, and onward, a lot of those families move out into the suburbs. They come further out. I'm someone who grew up in Anoka County, myself, uh, familiar with a lot of, you know, white working class families that had their origins there, you know, and over two or three generations had made that move further out into the suburban region. So I think the voting blocks change over time too, and this sort of support for a populist law and order candidate withers a little bit in Minneapolis itself. When Stenvig lost in the 1973 election, he had also lost the endorsement of the Police Federation. Why did the police union choose not to support him in that election? And and I'll admit I'm a little rusty here on the details, but if I'm remembering correctly, it got sort of complicated as we moved into the 1970s. He wins two elections. He then loses an election. Then he wins a comeback election later in the 1970s. There were allegations that in that interim period, when he's no longer the mayor in the early 70s, that he went back on the force and was accused of padding his overtime and doing some improprieties. He ultimately was cleared of those, I should say. But there was, I think, a sense among many in the police force, too, that the politicizing of the police that had happened in the late 1960s had run its course. And they were no longer interested in being at the forefront of the culture wars. There was a desire to professionalize, to sort of tone down the rhetoric and just get back to the business of being a police force. And so many of the initial issues that he had run on in the 1960s just didn't carry as much weight as we move into the period of the middle of the 1970s. And I should say during his last term, uh, he was a very lackluster mayor. Uh, he said, for example, you know, hey, if somebody gives me the right offer, I'm out of here. So it was not inspiring a lot of confidence among his supporters that he was working hard on their behalf by the time we got to the middle of the 1970s. Well, an interesting sidebar to that, actually the last Republican mayor of Minneapolis served a total of one day back in 1973. It would have been December 31st because Stenvig had resigned to resume his work uh, with the police department and uh, the president of the city council, who was a Republican, was the one-day mayor of Minneapolis. So interesting piece of history there. Uh, Stenvig was re-elected 
1975, his third, of course, a non-consecutive term, but, but his final term as mayor. How did Stenbig's political career ultimately end? His political career ultimately ends when he leaves office then after another two-year term. And what really struck me in looking back at it, or when, or when I was doing the research, what struck me was once he's then out of office and is no longer a viable candidate, because like I said, I mean, I think in the big picture, the issues had just changed a great deal. He was headed towards retirement himself. What did strike me was that he's kind of out of public life at that point as well. You know, so many former mayors continue on in various civic leadership positions. They're tied in through a political party or civic organizations and continue on in some prominent role. And sort of the downside of him being a regular cop who ascended to the mayor's office is that he fell just as fast. Once he was out of the mayor's office, he went back to being a regular cop and then was out of public life. Ultimately, he retired to Arizona uh, and lived a sort of quiet private life for the rest of his uh, the rest of his lifetime. He is now deceased. He would occasionally give interviews and things like that and stood in more as a symbol in Minneapolis after his career ended, his political career ended, than as someone who weighed in and had much to say on the issues themselves. We're talking with Southern Illinois University Professor of Historical Studies Jeffrey Manuel about the politics of law and order and former Minneapolis Mayor Charles Stenvig. Professor Manuel is the co-author of an article on Stenvig titled, You Can't Legislate the Heart. Well, as you've suggested, there are strong parallels in the dynamics that elected Charles Stenvig and other mayors throughout the country back in the late 1960s and early 70s. We're seeing some of the similar political wins today. Are we seeing a repeat of history here, I guess is the basic question. Are the dynamics so similar given the uh, civil unrest, the rise of crime in certain major cities? Uh, Is there a strong parallel between what is happening now Uh, and what was happening in the late 60s and early 70s? Certainly that's something I've thought a lot about with, like you're saying, the rhetoric about law and order, civil unrest in places initially like Minneapolis, like Kenosha. And I think there clearly is a move, it seems like, out of the Trump administration to bring back many of these themes, to paint the cities as lawless, in chaos, things like that. So that would imply that there is an attempt, at least by some folks, to bring back the forces that brought Charles Stenvig into power uh, many decades ago. I will say as a historian, I'm skeptical that they will play out the same way. I mean, we'll see. There's, as a historian, my important caveat is that I'm especially bad at predicting the future because I've spent so much time looking back. But I think there are some really important dynamics that are quite different today than they were in 1969. The first of these I've mentioned already, which is the changing composition of cities and their suburbs. That so much of Stenvig's support among white working class voters is no longer in the metro core itself within the city of Minneapolis or within a place like St. Paul either. It's out in suburban or exurban areas. I know For example, when I was presenting this paper early on, a woman, a prominent historian who had grown up in North Minneapolis, she came from a white working class family who lived in North Minneapolis and grew up during this era. She said, you know, my parents and everyone on our block were just die hard Stenvig supporters. But like many of those people, 
she also said her family then moved out uh, to an outer ring suburb within several years of Stenvig's time in office in the 1970s. We know that many of those neighborhoods became more diverse and particularly more African-American in the case of North Minneapolis. So the cities have changed a lot. So I think some of the the voting blocks that Stenvig was calling on just don't exist or so dramatically changed these days that it's hard to say. Uh, I think another lesson we could take away from Stenvig was that he came on the heels of a lot of national level rhetoric about this in the late 1960s, things like the Kerner Commission, the long hot summer of 1967, the 1968 presidential election. And of course, when we look back historically, we focus so much on what's happening in Washington, D.C. and at the presidential level. But it is important to note that it plays out differently in different metro areas. And Minneapolis was one place where some of that rhetoric that happened nationally a few years earlier continued to really kind of echo and influence politics right through the first half of the 1970s. So I think it wouldn't be surprising to see that on individual metro levels, we might see these politics play a really important role in city councils, in mayors, in police departments, and places like that. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the case in Minneapolis. I'll be honest, I I haven't lived in the Twin Cities for about a decade now. Uh, I'm down in the St. Louis area, which has had its own version of this, going back to the origins of Black Lives Matter and Michael Brown's shooting. Uh, So I think in some ways it calls our attention to the need to study these things and understand them on a city by city basis and be careful about painting with too broad a national brush. Jeffrey Manuel is an associate professor of historical studies at Southern Illinois University. He is the co-author of an article on former Minneapolis Mayor Charles Stenvig titled, You Can't Legislate the Heart. Professor Manuel, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me, Jim. This has been a real pleasure. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Next week, we present part two of our series on the politics of law and order and the tenure of former Minneapolis Mayor Charles Stenvig. We'll be joined by August Nimitz, who is a professor of political science and African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.